Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's October. It's hard to believe we're in the fourth quarter of 2023. And in the last two weeks, we have seen more MAGA madness than we've seen in a while. But gang, it's not going to get better. These people don't become normal overnight, and they're not likely to unless they are defeated and defeated badly next year. I need you to go to jointheunion.us or lincolnproject.us and sign up. Join our movement, gang. It matters. It takes all of us, and with all of us, we can make this happen. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm pleased to welcome back the New York Times bestselling author, Michael Lewis. Michael has chronicled America for the last three decades with classics such as Liar's Poker, Moneyball, and The Big Short. He joined us last year to discuss his book about the COVID response, The Premonition. His latest book, released last week and available wherever fine books are sold, is Going Infinite, The Rise and Fall of a New Tycoon, and tells the story of Sam Bankman-Fried, FTX, his crypto exchange, and the cryptocurrency space. Michael is also a columnist for Bloomberg View and a contributing writer for Audible. His articles have appeared in Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, Sports Illustrated, and many other outlets. He has a bachelor's degree in art history from Princeton and a master's in economics from the London School of Economics. Michael, welcome back. Thanks, Reed. Good to see you. Good to catch sight of you. So, look, your book is making a lot of news, probably more coincidentally than anything, the week that your book drops, the subject of said book is going on trial in federal court in New York on fraud charges. So let me ask you this. I appreciate the fact that at the very beginning of the book, you say, I didn't want to be taken in by this guy. I was told not to be taken in by this guy, and I was anyway. Tell me about how this happens. And candidly, because you hear the guy, Sam Bankman-Fried, he's like, you know, the tube socks, the shorts, the hair the very high nasally voice. This is not a guy you'd think would be sort of magnetic. Yeah, you know, you just paraphrase me in a way I wouldn't have paraphrased me because what happens in the beginning of the book is that he's just appeared out of nowhere. Like, there's not a sense of, oh, oh like, you got to watch out, worry about being taken in by it. He's gone from being having zero dollars to having $22.5 billion, according to Forbes magazine, inside of 18 months. And a friend called me up and said, we're about to swap $300 million of shares in our company with his company. And I don't know who he is. And I can't get a read on him because he's so peculiar. And you ask around, and this is like, this is a byproduct of like how modern capitalism works, how quickly these fortunes can be accumulated now. This is not something that's true in history. And so he said, could you just meet with him and let me know what you think of him? And I actually thought after two hours with him, I thought, I got to just watch this. I often lead in my books with characters. That's the way I find stories. I find someone I just want to hang around with and see what's going to happen with them. And he was already then, he had this big pile of money. No one knew who he was. 
his oddness sort of deflected a lot of questions. And he was, you know, stress testing all these institutions. You know, he was throwing a lot of money into American politics. He had figured out more or less how to use the media to his purposes. You know, he had an argument about changing philanthropy. And he was, of course, you know, in the middle of the financial system. So I was more interested. I wasn't suspicious. And there wasn't anybody telling me I should be really suspicious. It was more like just curiosity, like, who the hell is this and how the hell does this happen? So before I take a step back into cryptocurrency, I do want to ask about your friend who said, I'm about to swap $300 million with this guy. The levels of money in this book and in the crypto space are ridiculous. And it appears that to your friend, they're asking you, who, yes, I think, you look, you worked at Solomon Brothers, you have an economics background, but you're not a cryptocurrency expert. So the idea that they're like, hey, Michael Lewis, you're a famous writer. Why don't you tell me whether or not I should spend $300 million with this guy doesn't seem like the level of vetting that is appropriate. Well, to be fair to my friend, he was doing other things. He was like, I was another data point. It was like, he's so different. Maybe a writer can help me figure out who, what the hell is going on inside that box. And to your point about the sums of money that are kind of thrown around, this is where I got interested. I had dabbled in crypto as a possible subject starting about 2011. And it was just because crypto people were calling me, as you can imagine, you should write about us. You could have called it the new, 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 new thing. There you go. It's sort of like they were very promotional and it was like, oh, come write about And every time I'd go talk to them, I'd come away thinking, I feel like I'm hearing a solution in search of a problem. I don't get what this is for. And they were kind of tinny because they were just selling, essentially selling their book. It was like they want their crypto to go up. What got me interested was you get to 2000 and whatever, 19, and the market value of crypto is two or three trillion dollars. It created its own dynamic. Like just as crypto, as a technology, there was a certain backwater interest in this thing. Once it got that big, it starts to kind of have effects in the world. You have people like Sam Bankman-Fried who got $22 billion out of nothing. And that's where I started to get interested. And part of what appealed to me when I first met Sam was he wasn't pushing crypto. In fact, he was sort of like, one side of his mouth, he was saying, cryptos, it may be all bullshit, but I'm here because I can make money. I, I built the casino and I just all I care is people gamble. And it almost doesn't matter what it is. I think that's, to me, an important point. A friend of mine I was talking to, I mentioned that I was going to interview you and he, he wants to read the book. And he said, you know, when I first heard about crypto and I looked into it, this is a smart guy. He goes, I thought it was the pet rock of the 21st century. <laughs> That's a good line. He's like, and I even said, oh, I'm, I'm a steal it from I you. thought it was the segue. My first thought was, this is the segue. Right. And as I've told the audience before, I met these people in 2013, 2014, when I was working for this sort of libertarian conservative-ish tech group that was based in the Bay Area. And we had a conference and these people were there in droves. And Michael, as I've said, I couldn't make heads or tail of it. They were all very strange people. But here was the beginning. One was, it was almost as much philosophical as it was financial, which was they were all ultra libertarians, right? There was this strange philosophy. And you, you think about it like, we don't want to be beholden to the man to government overreach. We want privacy. You get into the Silk Road and the Dread Pirate Roberts, right, where they're all, you know, fans of the Austrian school of economics and Hayek and everything else. And it's all like freedom, 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 freedom. 
And this was the way that we were going to free ourselves from the financial system, right? That we could do whatever we want. Obviously, the Silk Road gets shut down. But then to your point, maybe as it grows in value, it takes on gravitational pull. The story changes. You know, it's funny. I had, there's a character in the book who was Sam's psychiatrist, who was, ended up being psychiatrist to his whole company. And he was a shrink in the Bay Area who somehow the crypto people found him. And he said he saw it in his own patient population that the first crypto people who roll in are all religionists and they all think the government's listening in on their phones. And then all of a sudden crypto starts to go up fast and you have the crypto bro. And it's the person who's there to make money. You know, it's the tulip craze. And they don't care what crypto is. They don't care what it does. They'll develop a rap about it, but they have almost nothing in common with the original Bitcoin religionists. One of the many things that is odd about this story and odd about that world to me is if you go back to the original paper where Bitcoin is announced, created. Satoshi Nakamoto. Still no one knows who he is. No one knows who he is. So you get to the second paragraph and he comes right out and says, this is basically about creating a trustless system. And underpinning is we can't trust governments. You can't trust banks. This is a mechanism for a financial system without trust. Which seems paradoxical, don't you think? A little bit. I think this is a fantasy. And they kind of almost prove it's a fantasy because if anyone was going to create a trustless system, it would have been crypto people because in theory, you could with this create just trustless direct interaction between people without any financial intermediaries that need trusting. Instead, these people create a kind of parallel financial system with all these institutions that you need to trust, brokers and banks, and especially crypto exchanges, most of which prove untrustworthy. And over and over again, crypto people are losing their money to either balky exchanges or corrupt exchanges, and they keep trusting. It's like, it isn't that they don't trust, they just don't want to trust the same people they were trusting before, they want to trust other crypto people. Well, and this I think is a broader piece of it too, which is there's belief, right, wrapped up in it, which is once I believed in it, if I don't believe it anymore, I have to admit to myself that I was wrong and I got taken. And that cognitive dissonance can be very painful. Well, that sounds like Trump. Right. Yes, absolutely it does. Yes. And it rhymes. That's totally right. But I guess, let me, let me just take a, an exit ramp here for a quick second, because you talk about the crypto bros, you talk about Sam Bankman-Fried, and it was like, everybody believes in Sam, believes in Sam. Everybody believes in Elon, right? And I wonder if, have we traded religion for these little balls, right, running around. They're false idols. Okay, maybe they're not the almighty, but people get wrapped up. It could be Trump too. People get wrapped up. I've got to believe in something. So it might as well be this guy who says I alone can solve it, or Elon Musk who fancies himself to be the real live Tony Stark, or a Sam Bankman Freed who's going to be a, you know, effective altruist. He's going to give away all his money. Like, is it people searching for something bigger than themselves to believe in and this was the next thing on the list? I think you're putting your finger, if not on something, very close to something. And my takeaway was the rise of people like Elon Musk and Sam Bankman-Fried is in part a result of the collapse in trust in institutions and governments. It's sort of like, we obviously have big problems we need to grapple with. Our institutions seem not up to the task. Our government and politics seems to be dysfunctional. And so when someone walks in and they have massive resources, ability to move fast, a bold plan, it's so appealing. It's sort of like, oh, well, something will get done. And someone who worked for Sam said something that 
I think it was true of a lot of the people who were gravitated towards him. After all collapsed and he, his life was in ruins, he says to me, I wanted to believe there was a Sam. And, you know, you said something that's interesting. You said something about it replaces religion. It's going to sound weird, but I really felt it was true in the moment that he had a religious figure-like appeal to people. And the way people organized themselves around him and told his story and told stories about him. And in fact, you know, in the end, lynch him up, you know, it has a little bit of a cult-like feel to it. And so, yes, I think that to make it even more interesting, what I just said and maybe really true of Elon Musk, but about Sam is that crowd around him and this movement he's a part of, effective altruism, is a very strange religion or cult because it's a cult that's supposedly based on reason and argument, like mathematical proof of various things. Probabilities of, your, of the value of your life. The value of your life. And what you get in the end is, although in every other aspect, it looks quite cult-like, like they all live together, they all believe the same things. There comes moments in this cult's life where someone wins an argument and the cult changes. That doesn't usually happen in cults. It's sort of like they have their beliefs and they live with their beliefs. It was interesting in that there would be these phase jumps about what the purpose of effective altruism was, and it really changed over time yet preserving the cult-like feel to it. So it was a little different. It was like an anti-cult cult. It was a cult where argument could win the day. But otherwise, yes, I think you're right that this is replacing something that's lost. Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. So, Michael, in preparation for this interview, I looked up the definition of sociopath and narcissist and I'm not a psychiatrist and I'm not a psychologist, but he certainly, in his writing alone and in his behavior, seemed to display some sociopathic and narcissistic traits, especially complete lack of empathy. At the end, when you're talking about, you know, he's a vegan because he doesn't want to hurt animals, but he has no affection whatsoever for animals. And as me, as who, is an, who believes the dogs are God's creation, you know, he has this guard dog. He's afraid the guard, you're afraid the guard dog will eat him because he has so little ability to like deal with it. <laughs> right. Like it seems like, you know, I don't know. Is he on the spectrum? I, and I don't mean to belittle people who are, you know, on the spectrum or the spectrum itself, but that was the sense I got reading about the guy. So oddly, given his external traits, knees bouncing around all the time, eyes shifting, very aware that he, he himself, it's, I'm not saying he lacks empathy. He says he lacks empathy. Born with an incapacity to feel certain things he senses other people feel. He has to teach himself the facial expressions. Well, so that's like classic, right? That he, he realizes when he's in high school that he can't make the facial expressions that everybody else makes. And he starts to take a mirror and says, like, teach himself how to grin so he can communicate kind of begrudgingly. Like, why the hell do you need me to smile after you say something that I think is funny? Like, can't I just think it's funny? So he has all those traits, and no one ever diagnoses him with autism or anything like that. So he's not, to my knowledge, never diagnosed. 
to his credit, very, very, very self-aware of the absences in him and sort of broadcast them to some extent and sort of is trying to compensate for them. And so in his interaction with a human, another person, he sort of decoded how to interact with people and like engineered the problem so that at the point I meet him, he's actually, he's not that bad to interact with because he's figured out some tricks, but he's very open about the fact he's figured out the tricks. So he's different, no question. And sociopath or narcissist? Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't feel qualified to sort of like render various diagnoses. What I thought of, I blurted it out when someone suggested he's autistic. I thought, I don't think he's autistic. I think there's some spectrum he's on that has not been properly described. There are things about him that don't fit my mental model of autism. Like, for example, really good at reading you. Like, his problem is, he is it's not, like, he can see what you're doing. He can see what's going on inside of you. He's not not reading you. It's you can't read him. So he's a cipher. He's a cipher. He's a puzzle. So and this is where it gets cool as a character. So he is a puzzle, just a born a puzzle. What is the only relationship he has as a kid where he's actually interacting with people in a seemingly normal way? He creates puzzle hunts. He creates puzzles for people to solve and hunts for them to go on. And it's where he's most comfortable. And what does he do in life? He creates a series of puzzle hunts for people. That, he's done one now. They're in a courtroom trying to figure out what this puzzle means right now. So I felt like I don't want to call him anything or label him anything because then people put him in a box and they say, oh, we've explained it. I feel like he's so unusual that you just have to like appreciate all the unusualness and you can come to your own conclusions about what it means. I mean, I would say that, you know, the the wealth that he is able to create, I guess, if that's a, a mass, I don't know if what, if it's either creation or a, being a mass, I don't know the right word, but, you know, he starts to get on television, you know, in sort of the marketing works, right? The marketing works. To his shock. Like, they didn't want to create an exchange because they thought they didn't know how to relate to people. Like, exchanges are like a carnival barker business. You got customers. They tried to get other people to take the software they built and run the exchange. And so he is shocked when he goes on TV and like, they love him. They love the twitchy eyes and the bouncy knee and the, won't oh, shut up. Well, look, you know, he's new. He's different. He's certainly different. But, you know, the thing is, you know, I was lucky enough to work for a president of the United States. And I, I wonder if this was the reaction of people. When the president of the United States walked into the hallway outside of wherever he was about to give a speech, everybody in that hallway sort of tensed up, right? And you felt the presence of the leader of the free world moving into a space. And I wonder if by dint of maybe not so much his personality, but the persona that either A, he created, was created for him, was thrust upon him with fortune covers and, you know, Giselle and Tom Brady and all this other stuff, did people suddenly feel like, oh, like they're in the presence of something? Because some people, even if they don't want to, their position can invoke that in others. So I'll tell you a story. This was not long after I started to kind of like just tag along with him. We were in Los Angeles. He's going to the Super Bowl. This is February of 2022, last year. And he gets invited to a party. He doesn't have any idea who the invitations come from. He doesn't know the person. His name is Michael Kivas. He's a former Hollywood agent, now money manager, supposedly lives in Beverly Hills. Sam doesn't even know how to pronounce his name. But with the invitation comes a list of people who might be here. And it's kind of wild who was going to be there. So Sam says, let's just, let's go see, let's go see what this is. 
And he had with him, his colleagues were freaking out because they thought it was like the Russian mafia setting him up to be abducted. So they were outside waiting to jump in and pull him out if it was that. We walk in the door into a garden. And in the garden are four Kardashians, Hillary Clinton, Doug Emhoff, Jeff Bezos, Leo DiCaprio, Chris Rock, Katy Perry, Kate Hudson, Jerry Jones, the owner of the Cowboys, the owner of the Rams. It's so dense with wealth and celebrity. It's more dense. I've been to fancy Oscar parties and more dense than that. Within about 45 minutes, the only pattern to the social life in the place was everybody was listening to Sam. And this is a funny moment. I'd never met, actually met Hillary Clinton. And at the end of the party, the host says, you know, you should meet her before she leaves because you're a writer and whatever. And so I, I went and found her and she was very gracious. And she looks at me though, kind of funny. And she says, what are you doing here? Like, what are you doing here? And I, and <laughs> yeah. I, you're not on this list. <laughs> no, you're not on this. This is like the A list, right? Right. And, and I said, oddly, there's someone, there were 70 people there. I said, oddly, there's someone here who I'm thinking about writing about. And she goes, that kid with the hair. And I said, how did you know? She goes, I talked to him and I thought he's a character for you. <laughs> people had that reaction to him. You know, next to Jeff Bezos, people wanted to talk to Sam Bankman fried And that was interesting because it wasn't just, oh, he's the latest big pile of money and money's falling off him and I want some of his money. It was more, they felt like he could explain things about the world that they wanted explained. But that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is, again, this is new. This is different. Now, let me just say this. If he was a well-credentialed kid, which he is, grown up near Stanford, Stanford parents, gone to MIT, worked at Jane Street Capital, this, you know, very boutique, but very well-known, you know, financial firm, you know. Nobody would care. Yeah. If you looked like you and me, nobody would care, right? No, no. But the money was absolutely necessary, but the money was not sufficient. That if he had been a dullard or if he had been obnoxious, if he'd been a jerk, there are a lot of ways he could have not been interesting. But what did someone say to me? Someone, I tell you, this is interesting. So a character from The Big Short, one of the books I wrote, you know, and these people were as cynical as the day is long. They're the ones who saw through the Wall Street ruses of the, right? Also a great movie, by the way. Great movie. But there was one of these characters from The Big Short was at an event with Sam. And I saw him. And I said, how you feel about him? And he says, I really like the guy. He goes, the quote was, it's not in the book, but he said, how many people have $25 billion and they're not douchebags? And then he said, and what I love about him is he has nothing to hide. Now, that's an amazing statement given what's happened and given who said it, that he felt transparent to people. He wasn't, but he felt transparent to people. Like, anything you want to ask me, I'll answer. It's just, here I am. And people responded to that. So the reason why he's in a courtroom today is about a year ago, November of 2022, things started to collapse at FTX, the crypto exchange, and Alameda Research, which was the crypto hedge fund that he had originally started. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you wrote the reason why all this customer money was sitting at Alameda was not necessarily because Sam Bankman-Fried had moved it there, but because FTX didn't have an American bank account, so they had to send the money somewhere. I mean, stuff may still come out of the trial, but what seems to have happened, state-of-the-art knowledge about this is 
there were two ways that money that should have been in cold storage in FTX got into Alameda's hands and was used by Sam and other traders. The big way, there's like $10 billion or something like that. There was $8 billion that had come into Alameda because it couldn't come into FTX when FTX was created because FTX could not get bank accounts. So if you wanted, they didn't have a dollar account, but Alameda did have various bank accounts. And I've seen wire transfers where you're trans you think you're transferring it to FTX, but it says Alameda on the transfer. So that happened. So a big pile of money got there that way. There was another mechanism though. FTX is a futures exchange, or was, which means that it's not just like you put your cash down and buy a stock. You put a margin down to make a bet, basically. Put $10 down to buy $100 of Bitcoin, which means that the exchange is at risk, that if Bitcoin goes from 100 to zero and you only put down $10, the exchange will lose $90 unless they claw some margin out of you. They developed a very clever way to margin people so the exchange wasn't at risk, and they applied it to all the investors on the exchange except Alameda. So Alameda, the trader, was able to essentially lose unlimited sums of money on trades on FTX. And that was the source of another couple of billion dollars that went from FTX into Alameda. But that wasn't their money, right? No, it wasn't their money. It was other people's money. And, you know, to finish the story and just to messy it up a little bit, and what's so odd about it, is that Sam had done something like this, very similar to this, in just his hedge fund back in 2018, and it left half the effective altruists he worked with thinking he was a crook or, or a thief. And... After they all split, they found all this money that was supposedly lost. And what's weird now, and this is like a story to be determined, but there was $8.6 billion of customer deposits were supposedly gone. And the bankruptcy team three months ago announced that they've actually found $7.3 billion of it. And they're sitting on a pile of assets that's probably worth another $1.3 billion. So we're in this weird place where Sam Bankman-Fried may be about, probably is, about to go to jail for a long time. And it's possible that the customers are going to get their money back after great inconvenience in a long time. But it's possible. And you talk to people who trade in the claims on the exchange, persuasive, smart, like former Goldman people are buying this stuff at 35 cents on the dollar. I think it's going to go to 100. So it's an odd situation. It's like messier. It's messier than he just stole the money and the money's gone. It's like he used the money, but the money is maybe in some sense still there, much of it anyway. Right. But again, you're not supposed to send if, oh, no, if you no, no, have an saying, exchange. No, this is not okay. to defend him. Right, this right, is right, to, right. to say like it's a weirder situation. Right. But I want to say one thing about this guy, Ray, who um, was John Ray, who took over as sort of the cleanup guy. He yes. cleaned up Enron. And he said the men he evaluated tended to place in one of three bins in his mind. Good guy, naive guy and crook. Sam very obviously was not a good guy, and he sure didn't seem naive. And I think, you know, just to close is, I wonder, and this is a bigger philosophical question, did Sam Bankman-Fried always have this inside him, or did the level of wealth and exposure and real power, if he had wanted it, obviously gave more than five million bucks to Biden's campaign. I saw the story or the interview about where he wanted to give five billion bucks to Trump to go away, which, you know, maybe that would have been a great thing. Did unlimited power warp him in an unlimited way? It's certainly not true that it was like a diabolical plot right from the beginning because they weren't even trying to start an exchange. So it was more complicated than that. They crawfished their way into this position they shouldn't have been in. And I think 
if you ask me what it was, like to psychoanalyze this situation, my view is this, that Sam Bankman-Free is incredibly ambitious and he's totally isolated as a kid, but he has this romantic view of himself in his head that gets completely confirmed by Wall Street when he goes to Jane Street. And what Jane Street tells him about himself is I'm really good in these semi-chaotic environments where like, it's not playing chess, it's playing chess on a clock where you got to make moves every five seconds and the rules of the game change every minute. And so nobody else can function in this chaos. I can. I can multitask. My attention's everywhere. And I think at some level he was constantly trying to create these conditions because they were the conditions in which he, he succeeded. And he wasn't ever really thinking about what are the consequences of my actions for other people. Because, put it another way, he doesn't feel the risk he's exposing other people to. Right, because he doesn't have any empathy. Because he doesn't have any empathy. <laughs> and so that's what he did. He put a lot of people at risk, including his own. The biggest losers in all this, by far, are his own employees. Like, they all believed. Whole families in Taiwan and in, in Hong Kong have lost their money because they had some kid who worked for FTX and talked the family to putting the money on FTX because they all believed it. And also hundreds, maybe thousands of other people on other exchanges in the whole sort of crypto space. Right. And so what I'd say is that like when you're running a business, to have no sense that you're supposed to take care of other people, any kind of business, it's a bad way to be because you are in a position of having to take care of people. And he is uniquely unsuited to taking care of people. Well, and I want to say this because I know I've got two minutes left with you. I found it fascinating how repelled he was by the humanities when he was in school, that he hated the subjective nature of having to read, give an opinion on something, you know, hopefully it was the opinion the teacher wanted. And I found that fascinating because he was in a business in which belief is everything and belief is the ultimate subjective thing. It's a very interesting point. And somehow he couldn't connect those things. He thought the probability in his head was objective. Well, maybe it was, but how other people believed it, whether that was his employees or his investors or his customers, believed. And they took that belief and they wrapped rationality around it, but it still was subjective at its core. And I thought he was always, it was repellent to him that something could be subjective. Can I put it another way? It was repellent to him that one story could be regarded as better than another story, that it was all just nonsense. How can you evaluate a story? But he was living by story. And his story was really good for a while, and then it got really bad. Right. Michael Lewis, thank you for joining me. Reed, good to see you. Again, guys, the book is Going Infinite, available wherever fine books are sold. And as always, you can find me on Twitter, at Reed Galen, on Instagram and threads, at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. And now... Sign up for my new Substack, The Home Front. It is up, it is out, two, three times a week. I'm giving you what I think you need to know, The Home Front on Substack. Thanks again to Michael Lewis and to everyone for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. 
And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.